Live from Toaster, this is John Gibbs with The Morning Break. You are listening live. Welcome to The Morning Break with John Gibbs. This week, I consider what schools will look like in the future. How will the pandemic have changed our ideas about education? Where will we go from here? And with the help of my guests, Professor Chris Brown and Ruth Lasmore, we consider the future of schools. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. And we're back with my guest this week, Chris Brown, Professor of Education at Warwick University, and Ruth Lasmore, former primary school teacher, now lecturing and writing and researching for a PhD. Now, Ruth and Chris came together to write a book called Educating Tomorrow, which is an interesting survey, both of the past of education, how we got where we are today, and also reflections on where education might be going in the future. So, Chris, if I start with you, what brought you to consider schools of the future and where education might be going? I, I know that to some extent it was a reaction to the pandemic, which for many of us was a chance to think where we we're going with our lives as much as anything else. Interestingly, it, it, it was catalysed definitely by, by lockdown, but there was a stage before. Um, it was more to do with um, Elon Musk and Elon Musk making these broad plans to go and colonise Mars. And, you know, you've also got these other people that are interested, you know, obviously you've got Jeff Bezos and you've got uh, as the Asgardian Society you know, trying to create this this uh, new country on a satellite. And um, but the, the kind of thought was, well, if we're going to go to Mars, what's education going to look like on Mars? Because the role of education is to fulfill the needs of whatever society lands on Mars. And, and you know, it'd be a shame if we just took exactly what we have as a society, put it on Mars and then made education a kind of a function of that. So we were kind of playing around with that idea. And, but then the pandemic hit and actually um, it just seemed, well, this is almost a kind of opportunity now. It's, it's like that, that kind of blank slate of going to Mars in many ways, the way it disrupted things, but it, it kind of, it plays out, plays out now. Yes, predicting the future is fun and difficult. And I think the lockdown presented us with a pause moment where we could have a think about where we might go with so many things. Lots of people, I think, re-evaluated their lives and decided to retire early or to go back into education or to change their careers or to work more from home. And in that, in that way, I think we sim- also thought a lot about schools and it forced us to teach differently during lockdown. And I think a lot of us wondered, a lot of people, a lot of teachers wondered whether this was something we would continue in the future. Yeah, I mean, at the time I was uh, head teacher of a primary school in London and it was it was interesting how almost overnight, I think we had a little bit of warning, but pretty much overnight, everything that was our bread and butter, our day-to-day routine, our things which were, you know, crystallised in the term and points within the year of the schools such as suddenly went and all those things we were told were the most important things that we could do and you know our primary functions just got thrown out of the window overnight um so yeah like i say chris and i've been talking about the idea i think we, we were originally going to call the book educating mars weren't we 
And then it became like, okay, well, actually, here we are. It's all gone a bit dystopian already. Let's go for it and, and think about it. And, I, you know, it was a good intellectual activity at a time when everything was crazy, wasn't it? So. But the, the other thing is, what, so school went out the window, but you also had um, society in a little bit going out the window in the sense that you had governments doing things that you would never anticipate governments doing. So you would never, ever think that, I mean, I, I would say a conservative government, but any government would suddenly start paying people not to work. You know, here you go, here is money, don't go to work. You, you, you've, got, you've got it to stay home. And you kind of think, well, if that's possible, anything's really possible. If we just put our mind to it, you know, if you, if you really can do that, then we can do whatever we want. So let's, let's see what we, we might, might kind of do with this, you know, this blank slate with this kind of sandbox that we can kind of play with. Yeah, I think one of the things we talk about, I think it comes up a couple of times about the wicked problems inherent within our education system. And if we're trying to solve, you know, we can talk about the issues with the assessment system or the curriculum, but they're all wicked. They are all interdependent on other issues and other problems within our society. So uh, you can always then come up against arguments that people have and say, well, that wouldn't work because of this thing going over here. This won't work because of that. So actually the, the intellectual exercise is going, well, hang on. Things are possible to do things differently. This is a moment of crisis. Crisis are often times when we can, you know, come out and think about society in a different way. Um, so it was actually quite a fun thing to do. It, it was a lot of fun to to take that time to think about things in a completely different way. I think that's well. I think that's interesting because although you, you, your idea is to start with a blank sheet, of course, then you have to think well what's probably going to carry on in society that we, we, we need to think about, as you've said, and <clears throat> what are the trends that are kind of nascent that are growing that has to, has to kind of guide our thinking in some sense or another. And there's so many interesting trends around the idea of um, who's doing what and how are they doing it. So this kind of rise of artificial intelligence kind of performances or operations taking over certain jobs, taking over certain skills. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that because actually, you know, the, the ability of a, of a machine in many ways to diagnose um, kind of basic things, you know, in terms of, you know, if you've got an eye problem or to kind of process things that can be processed quite mechanically, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you've also got this kind of rise of automation as well, that's just doing jobs that that kind of take away, you know, the need for, for kind of routinized work. And you've also got um, then alongside that, a, a shifting, ever shifting, kind of job market and ever shifting um, requirement for different sets of skills for different sets of competencies and so on. And you've also got at the same time, so you've got then people who are either continually having to uh, update themselves to stay relevant or will find themselves periodically out of work. And at the same time, going back to this idea of well, what are we there for? What are we trying to do? Um, you've got those organizations that are starting to experiment with um working you know the same um getting paid the same for working four days a week say you've got experiments in things like universal basic income so people get whether they work or not a given amount of money um per annum uh to, to to live on and all of these things tie together quite nicely because actually if you do start to have um more free time either because you're between jobs or because your employer has kind of said okay we're actually working you know, four days a week, but for five days pay. And that becomes affordable because you've got things like universal basic income. Then we can actually start to think about, well, as a society, what are the kind of skills that we require? And from people, 
given that you've got these machines and these these, these kind of um, data uh, data processing systems going on, what is it that people can do that nobody else can can do? And what does that look like? And and there's a kind of there's an argument there for things that we uniquely as humans can do. And I would I would pitch there amongst other things, you know, this idea of creativity. Now, for sure, you know, machines can produce music and they can produce art, but that's not the same as human produced art and music. You know, we, we kind of really doing it because it comes from a creative process within. It's not a, we're not producing an algorithm uh, and, and something churns out, you know, it's, it's our way of being creative of putting different ideas together or coming up with something radically new. So, so things like that, we, we kind of saw as actually being, what really being human is about in a, in a kind of new new society. I think that's the bit for me. Of, you know, what is it? What does it mean to be human? What is it that makes our lives? You know, gives us that kind of sense of fulfillment, happiness, if you want. And I think, like you said, John, earlier, that there was moments of reflection within the pandemic where a number of us had thoughts about where our lives were and what we might want to do differently as a result of going through that that process or um, even I, I think one of the things I've taken from it is it's not seeing education in the way that when I was working in a school as that's from the age of five to 18. That's what education is. And I suppose that was the one thing about thinking as education as a lifelong um, process and designing a society or wanting society where, you know, it's not that race, that hurdle, that race to the end of 18. And then you're off at university if that's your path or if you can you know, have the access to that. But thinking about um, the dispositions we want humans to have and things that develop throughout childhood, which means that education continues throughout life as well. OK, so whether we liked it or not, we were in a way forced to conduct a kind of thought experiment, uh, a Rawlsian veil of ignorance where we were to step us outside of the world and look back at it and imagine the kind of society and the kind of the kind of people in that society we would like it's a difficult task and uh, inevitably where we're going to start is with the past and the best way to think about the future is to understand the past and i think the lockdown gave us an opportunity to think some big ideas uh, well there's yeah no i, I think that's exactly right and uh, as well as, you know, what humans themselves can do, how do humans react or respond to one another and work together with, with you know, as a community, as a collaborative, as, as, as kind of a group of, of people? And I, I do think one thing that the kind of lockdown has shown, I mean, you know, with, uh, to, to, to kind of use, use a phrase, I can't remember who coined it, you know, better together kind of stuff. Um, you know, we, we do work better together, but you can also kind of see what happens when we get this kind of rise in antisocial behavior, when people just care for themselves and not care for others? You know, we, we kind of, at the moment, we have kind of streets and countrysides cluttered with litter and plastic and everything else because people aren't thinking beyond the self and, and towards the kind of community and towards the, the kind of environment more generally. So I think those kind of, those dispositions as as played out to, to one another also, you know, very, very important. I think we were less concerned with the, the vehicle about how education is delivered and more like you say how does that fit into the societal aim so we were very much thinking much on the more on the bigger picture 
you know, we want children to be knowledgeable. We want them to be learning the things that they're probably learning already in school anyway, perhaps different aspects of, of the canon, though, to be emphasised differently. But I think the bits we were talking about were, were trying to build, you know, a human, as it were, who is capable of wise decision-making, of habit-building, of things which are going to contribute to society, but also help them individually to have you know fulfillment too uh, rather than a yeah this is this is what the classroom should look like so i suppose that was we, there was that bit at the end of it when we talked all about the digital technology and you know john you were saying how even you're enjoying the fact teaching online I'm, I'm also doing some teaching online as well which i really enjoy but ultimately the school the physical school building i think will always have a place you know it's a it's a community place and clearly we can't have everybody learning at home i'm fortunate in not having a child so I didn't have to suffer having go through home learning and having a child at home but you know the school the physical building and the, that community there will still exist I think in the future and I think it's important that it does for the people but um on the other hand Ruth I remember when you're saying that and I quite agree with you really that it's very isolating and lots of students had very poor experiences during lockdown when their education declined and all sorts of things they didn't have access to the technology but any any parent who's taken their kids to the school gate for the first time and thought, I hope they're not bullied because I can that goes on and I hope they enjoy it because they don't always. And you realize schools can also be very brutal places and the playground's not always nice and behind the bike sheds, terrible things occur. And some teachers are quite strange. And the they are. I mean, I've met a lot of them and they're really quite strange. <laughs> and you think these are going to be in charge of my children. Why don't I just do it? You know, if I could at home. By the way, if you've missed it, go back and listen to last Friday's morning break with Poppy Gibson. And her guest was Lucy Wheeler, who is a, a leading light in the homeschooling movement and makes a really powerful case for homeschooling as an alternative to school, a genuine and very real and expanding uh, alternative to school. I thought it was a pleasure to be homeschooling. Uh, that was one of the one of the two best times of my life. The first was um, when my when my daughter was born. I, I took her. I took six months off to become a full time dad, which was just the most amazing thing. And then basically, I, I can't remember how long it was now eighteen months, two years, or something of of kind of homeschooling. Where actually you're like just spending so much time with your kid and thinking this is the best thing. I didn't want her to go back. I, I wanted homeschool. I thought it was wonderful. So I don't think she felt the same way. But I, you know, for me, it was it was amazing. Oh, and, and, you know, it's interesting to see the rise in homeschooling that's come from it. And I'm, I, I know there's a lot of concern around these safeguarding issues around people doing homeschooling. But I think it's great that actually more people became more involved in their child's education uh, and saw a lot more about what that's what, what happens. And, I, you know, I, I, am I allowed? I don't think school's for everyone. Is that OK to say? Is that okay to say? I don't think mainstream school is for everyone. Yeah, I think not only is it okay to say, I think it's a necessary reminder that the schools we have today have arrived by accident, by a chance of history, by compromises and adaptations to society that happened faster than people were able to fully appreciate. So the schools we've got are very much an accident. I don't think they have been designed and the design is largely a 19th century design classrooms whiteboards chalkboards teachers talking from the front that's pretty much exams formal assessment writing with biros in exam rooms 
All these things are really things of the past. And of course, that's as I started this whole enterprise of reflecting on what schools were for a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I reflected that schools are drawn between the past and the future, trying to inculcate students with the skills of the future, while also preserve the values and traditions of the past and respond to the immediate panics of of society, the folk devils and the panics. We must make students more polite or less radical or whatever the latest fear. So schools are driven by fear and by tradition and by expectation. And everyone, of course, thinks they know best how to run a school. And they oscillate between discipline and informality, formal education and informal education, creativity. And while all those things go into the mix, the exact balance is hard to determine. I often think that people, when they think about schools or schools of the future, those who support nature schools and those who support technology schools, students of the future wearing headsets and wandering through a meta universe of some kind, looking as if they were in sort of 3D worlds, and the technology of the future uh, will dominate schools, uh, or they'll be at home and with headsets on or something like that. And the nature, the nature, not naturists, that's quite different. The nature schools are those people who are going to, uh, you know, put down your, bit like the Acorn School, the private school in London. I think it's in London, the Acorn School, where they uh, ban students from having mobiles or tablets or computers and emphasise exploring and climbing and the outdoors and fresh air and exercise and dance and movement and uh, technology is kept firmly in the background until they're well into their teens. I do think there's a fine balance there between um, consistency and kind of not revolution but kind of iterative improvement because yeah you're right part of the education system is about um, reinforcing the kind of values and norms that went before and I think, you know, that's, that's a, a kind of reassuring thing in many ways. And we wouldn't certainly want, you know, the, the generation one to be like this and generation two to be completely different because you kind of have total social discord. Um, but I think what there has to be before we start that is an agreement about what it is we want. Because once we have what we want, then we can start to reinforce those, those values and norms through the, through the education process. And I guess the discussion about economy sits into that for sure, you know, in in one sense, you know, we people clearly have to have jobs, and they ha- they need to have jobs. Um, but the the kind of again the function and purpose of the economy and what it's kind of geared towards and, and why and how at the moment, you know, we if you if you took the kind of uh, Liz Truss's view on on what makes a great you know economy and therefore society, it was a kind of low tax uh, kind of just work uh, work people and produce as much as we can. And it was a complete disregard for the environment. I mean, the, the kind of Greens were up in arms about, you know, this idea of all we need to do is just maximise growth. That's all we should be doing. And let's just cut tax and, and try and get that going. So we have to think about what what's the relationship between the economy, which is, you know, capitalist in nature, and the um, the other things we have to attend to, like the environment. I mean, how do we how do we kind of square that that circle that, you know, we, if we have jobs, we, we need we need some kind of growth, but we also need to make sure that we still have a planet to live on moving forward. And so, the, in a sense, I think then you know it, it, once once we can work out what we're trying to achieve, then education becomes a, a tool to deliver that. I mean, we use this phrase in the book about education being our superpower. It is a superpower. It can do so many great things, 
But, you know, the, that Spider-Man quote, with the, the great responsibility that you have to use that superpower, we have to make sure we're putting it in the right, right direction. I mean. So if one of the ways we think about education is to acknowledge its power to do good, to transform society, to prepare students for the future, to answer the problems of society, to build the kind of citizen and the kind of human being that we would like to meet in the street, to to be surrounded by, to be ourselves, to our children to be, if that is the superpower of education. I think the lockdown, for me, also revealed the power of education to do bad, uh, to do ill, uh, for schools to produce inequality. Now, I, in a sense that during lockdown, much was said about the, in the unequal experiences that students were having at home some with virtually no education, their education had fallen by the wayside. Others were having the kind of experience, Chris, you were mentioning with your kids, a very wonderful experience, possibly, throwing into light something of the nature of school itself. And the way in which we were surprised by the, by the inequality, as if it weren't there all the time, as if our education system didn't produce inequality. In fact, it was virtually designed to do exactly that, to be a filter so that allow a certain amount of people into certain professions to socially structure society. Don't be too Marxist about this, but in essence, school was a form of social engineering to produce the kind of society that we have. In other words, inequality is a product of school. As much as schools uh, are an attempt to be meritocratic, they're also uh, generally in history been exactly the opposite have stifled the experiences of most students. Oh, can I just challenge you there? You said the school system produces inequalities. Is it, I, I would say, I don't know if it's the school system produces inequalities or is a reflection of society that's already unequal. You, the conditions that you are born into or, or grow up in are perhaps the school system can't solve all of those necessarily i'm not sure that education is i don't know that education is the answer to i mean i don't really like the term social mobility because it has we talk a little bit of book about that zero-sum game of like if you're going to be socially mobile that means people are going to you know move down the ladder below you but educate i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm on the wrong thing here but i i school's not going to fix all of the society's you know, inequality in society, that I don't think it will. I think there are two, two, two things. I mean, it, you know, there are so many interesting but flawed policies in this area that have occurred over the years. And I think one of them, the really interesting one for me is, is kind of universities and the, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of probably Blair's, one of Blair's biggest fans. I thought Tony Blair was wonderful. But um, one of the craziest policies I thought that came out of this was 50% of people should go to university because the kind of policy was, okay, well, the outcomes of people that go to university are so much better. Therefore, if more people went to university, so much more people, so many more people would have these outcomes. But that's just not the way the world works because the system will always find ways of making sure that some universities are better than others or that there are other markers of success uh, and therefore, as, as Ruth just said about the zero something, that just meant a lot more people went to university and then ended up working in, you know, um, fast food restaurants or something like this. You know, that, that just seemed to seem to be the result of that, that policy. I think, so to my mind, I mean, when you've got, you know, 3% of the 
world owning, you know, more than half of its wealth, you know, inequality isn't going away anytime, anytime soon. But what we can do is try to make sure that we, you know, we have at least a, a basic minimum that people don't fall below. And I think one of the things we talked about in the book was this idea of transhumanism. This is, and Ruth just mentioned it, this is this idea that technology can make us better than human, you know, um, superhuman. And clearly, uh, and people are doing this, you know, people are doing this not just in America, but in, in Europe too. And they're trying to already trying to augment their bodies with forms of technology. Um, people are, I mean, I'm not, you know, Elon Musk fan. I'm, I'm just, I, I just listen to what he says and I kind of use it to, to spark ideas. But he, you know, he's said that if we want to engage in interstellar space travel, then you can't do it as humans. You have to kind of somehow merge with technology. And I think that's, that's probably right. So people are pursuing this idea. But what it means clearly is the more money you've got, the better technology you've got, the better you'll be able to, to augment yourself. And so if, if you kind of track that pathway, eventually you're going to have a, a, a kind of group of people who are uber rich that have got these amazingly, um, kind of specced bodies that they've augmented with the best technology. And as, you know, ultimately the aim is somehow you can start to download knowledge. But what do we do for the rest? And I think that's, that's where, you know, governments have a role where um, we can kind of start to, to intervene because, you you know, there must be a basic minimum, surely, uh, of of what we, we expect a human to be and look like and be able to, to, to function. Nonetheless, even if you do have an infinite amount of knowledge floating around in your brain, as Ruth identically said, uh, I correctly said earlier, um, then it's about how you use it. And again, that then comes back to what school is about. So it's not about uh, necessarily reducing inequality per se, but it's about making sure that, people come out with appropriate values, behaviours, dispositions um, that they can use to navigate their way, I think. Is, is, are we not trying to de develop the knowledge and disposition? Or what's, what's come from COVID? Like you say, is there was suddenly like, it was suddenly like some people realised that there was inequality in society, which already existed to begin with, you know. The, the digital inequality that we speak about in the book, that existed beforehand. You know, the, the families who, you know, you work with who are in, single bedroom flats and there's six of them sharing that was always there you know the fact that we schools have such thing about feeding families we were already doing that it wasn't it just became much more um noticeable to it seems the press and the rest of society and so perhaps it's more about how we build people who or how we you know, educate people so that they have the dispositions to do well in what they want to do and to recognise inequality and want to have that challenged and want to have perhaps a society where there isn't that level of inequality that we were talking about with um, our superhumans. I don't know. That, it, that inequality is inevitable in the sense that some people are taller than others and some people are going to be more capable than others. You're right, we can't get rid of that. I would defend my view that we don't do ourselves any favour through exam systems, for instance, that give large numbers of students grades which show that, which are literally paper or grade statements of their failure and others grade statements of their success. And lots of students leave school with grades that only say to anyone who reads them, you clearly are not very good at things. And others who say, well, and they've given them access to a world and others excluded from that world. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond.
Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Cambrian News reports on Sport Wales' survey of school sport and its findings from 2022. The results showed that 39% of pupils took part in organised sport outside of the curriculum, a decrease of 9% since 2018, with a further 36% of pupils reporting no frequent participation in an organised sport outside of the curriculum, an increase of 8%, making the nation less active than in 2018. The report also highlights issues with schools having appropriate equipment to make sport provision more inclusive, as well as concerns around a growing wealth divide. There is a 15% difference in participation in organised sport outside of the curriculum between the least and most deprived areas. The gap has increased since 2018. Football remains the most popular sport participated in at a community setting. In schools, there has also been a decline in the number of minutes of curriculum PE per week, with primary schools providing an average of 93 minutes, down from 99 minutes in 2018, and secondary schools providing around 93 minutes, down from 95 in 2018. The decrease in wider participation is attributed to the pandemic, but funding, adequate training and reliance on volunteers also has an impact. Full details of the survey can be found on the Sport Wales website. The impact a teacher can have on the lives of students has been a topic across radio and television media outlets after the Princess of Wales was pictured hugging her former history teacher. The pair met up after a 25-year gap during a visit to the National Maritime Museum in Cornwall, with the Princess reportedly telling her old teacher, the things you taught me I now teach to my children. Former teacher Mr Embry described the princess as exuberant and just like she was. He also referred to her as conscientious and considerate while she was a student. The pleasure at seeing her former teacher and the time spent chatting were captured in many photographs and resulted in plenty of further discussion on teachers who were remembered fondly for playing a role in the lives of their pupils. Strikes, teacher pain, conditions and previous comments made by Education Secretary Gillian Keegan continue to dominate the news. ITV News reports that Ms Keegan has defended her claim that teachers are among the best off financially, when you consider the whole package. She told ITV News that benefits outside of the basic salary made it hard to compare their jobs with those in the private sector. In the interview, Ms Keegan made comments about possible plans to toughen up the law to force teachers to inform school leaders if they plan to strike and insisted that she would not budge from her position of rejecting above inflation pay rises. Ms Keegan also talked of plans to change the university application system UCAS to include apprenticeships alongside traditional degrees and to promote different career paths. The interview was part of a two-day visit to the North West with ITV having exclusive access to Ms Keegan. Full details of the story and more of the Education Secretary's views on strikes, pay and the views she has on education can be found on the ITV News website. The United Nations appears to have weighed into the debate on religious schools in Ireland. 
On the National Secular Society website, the group suggests that the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, UNCRC, has urged the Republic of Ireland to guarantee the right of all children to practice freely their religion or belief, by no longer allowing exemptions to ensure a child's right to education on religious or ethos grounds. Most primary schools in Ireland are run by churches, and 90% are Catholic schools. Over half of secondary schools are linked to a particular religious denomination, although there are 150 multi-denominational schools in the country. The UNCRC also called on Ireland to strengthen measures to eliminate discrimination against LGBTQ children, as well as children of minority faith or non-faith backgrounds. The issue has raised its head again after reports by the Irish Department for Education were submitted to the UNCRC to highlight progress following previous recommendations. Finally, BBC News features a long read article about the BAFTA-nominated film Blue Jean and the lesbian teachers who inspired it. The plot follows a lesbian PE teacher in the late 1980s, at a time when a controversial law banned the promotion of homosexuality via Section 28. The legislation was in force until 2000 in Scotland and 2003 in England and Wales. The film was released on the 10th of February. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm taking a look at the AI-powered all-new Microsoft Bing search. Are we soon to be saying Bing it instead of Google it? There's only one way to decide. Let's have a search engine scrap. First, to use Bing, it's recommended you have the Edge browser installed. However, you can just go to bing.com. To get the full experience, I'm signing into my Microsoft account on bing.com in the Edge browser and signing into my Google account on google.co.uk in Chrome. Putting both interfaces side by side, they look the same, only Google has no distractions. Today, that is, as sometimes there's a Google doodle to celebrate something. Bing has a block of top news stories, and you can scroll down to see more headlines and ads. This, I feel, is a negative for Bing, as it's really easy to be distracted. Click something that catches your eye, and searching turns to procrastinating. Other slight differences are Bing search results when clicked, opening a new tab, Google's don't. This is not a problem on your computer, but tabs are different on your phone, and it could be a little annoying having to close them if you doing an extensive search. On the flip side, it could be useful if comparing prices, etc. The decision is for you to make. I know what you're thinking. Test the AI, Steve. Okay, I'm on it. As Bing now wants to chat with me, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people. What should I cook? In Google, I simply type, barbecue five people. The results differ. Bing gives me 165 million results, top being planning a large barbecue cookout for a crowd. It was a decent read and ranged from cooking for 60 to 100 people to five to six. I'm now quite hungry. Google gave me a string of barbecues to buy, adverts, and then the first result was on the barbecue calculator. This was right up my geek street and I think Google won this round. You put the number of people in and then put the number of kids in and select some other options and it tells you what you need to buy to have a barbecue for that many people. Genius. Omni was third down in the Bing search. Only very slightly is Google winning at the moment. I like that Bing didn't hit me with ads straight away. I thought Google suggested searches, the people also asked bit, was neater and easier to scan than Bing's. Bing's was a bit wordy. With Google slightly in the lead, 
Let's do my last test. I'm going to introduce some vegans. Now on my search in Bing, I type, I'm having a barbecue for five people. Two are vegan. What should I cook? In Google, I simply type barbecue, five people, two vegan. Bing brings me 176 million results and Google a mere 109 million. Both show pretty much exact results, apart from the advertising from Google. Same top sites and no sign of meat anywhere. I'm inundated with vegan recipes for barbecue. Scrolling down, AI wins. The sixth result on Bing is 20 tips for hosting a vegan guest to dinner. By the time I get to page four of Google's results, I've given up. To draw a conclusion, it's down to personal preference. Bing uses the same search algorithms and the AI is new, so it's still learning. The question is really, what will it be like in the future when it's had time to learn more? Don't forget to tell us what you would do if a vegan was coming to your barbecue. Get in touch at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And thanks to Steve Woods and Joe Fox there for the news and the tech update. You're back with John Gibbs, the Friday morning break, and my guests, Dr. Chris Brown and Ruth Lusborn, as we discuss schools of the future. think about schools in the future, surely one thing that must change is the examination system. Sitting down in rows, writing essays with biros, in the age of technology and laptops and phones and mobile phones and augmented reality and all the things that it might be possible to assess students differently and the skills they're acquiring. Everyone knows, it's a cliche, that every student can operate a computer and a mobile phone far quicker and type far quicker with their thumbs into their phones than we possibly can at our age. And yet we'll send them into a room with a biro and a book and an answer book and a piece of paper. It can't last much longer, can it? I, I've, uh, another project I've been working on recently, um, as part of that, we were looking generally at school systems. I'm really interested in, I don't know, John, if you've come across... Um, Oh, I can't remember his name, but that somebody's looking at a national baccalaureate as an assessment system. So instead of just your academic outcomes, um, I think it's Tom Sheridan's doing some work on it. And I think it's really interesting. So it's looking at qualifications at the end of your school life, which aren't just those academic grades, but it's also taking in, you know, did you learn an instrument? Did you take part in a play? You know, kind of gaining points, as it were, so that, like you said, that piece of paper that you come at the end is such a poor um, it's such a poor representation for a really rich curriculum really rich experience that many i'd say the vast majority of our students in in schools have they have a really good diet at their school but at the end of it like you say there's this piece of paper which says you've got an ab or not even ab or c anymore was it one yeah you know you know what i mean it we narrow it down because that makes it that's what we've always done, but it's not particularly helpful to employers. It's not particularly helpful to represent what you have achieved by the age of 18 or 16. And there are different ways of looking at that. And I do think, you know, those are the kind of conversations where we should be having a lot more. Now, obviously, they're challenging, they're difficult. Changing our system is really is really difficult. It was very interesting being a primary head teacher where we had what we had year one phonics, we had early years, we had year two, we were just introducing the maths, we had the year six, we had five different compulsory assessment points, which my, you know, the targets for the school 
we were judged off, whether that was by, you know, the local authority or by officer coming in. There were five points where we were looking at those assessment grades and, you know, our jobs were on the line if they weren't good and they weren't or they weren't good over a sustained period of time. And that was interesting. I think some of the things that were done around assessment probably did drive up standards when they were pretty poor at times or perhaps we weren't really thinking about our pedagogy and there was some maybe some teaching which wasn't as good as it could be and it was very much that carrot and stick effect whether we still need it i'm i'm very cynical of um but whether one would hope that we'd learn something from the fact that we not having all of those assessment points gave us some more time to work on perhaps some of the things which were needed for those students around their socialization around just learning to be better teachers as well so the before we get on to some of the big changes that might happen in the future over the last few years one thing that i've noticed in my career and your book identifies it as well some of the trends particularly the marketization and accountability trends in education in other words what one i can remember this is absolutely true when i was in some time in the 1980s and i'm te- or late 80s teaching in a school and I said, well, I'm going to come in to look at the exam results this summer to see how the students I've just taught did. And there was a general feeling of, why would you do that? And the other teachers said, well, I never look at the exam results. They, you know, it's not up to me. That's how they did. You know, I, I, my responsibility ends as they go into the exam room. But well, how different that was by the end of my career when exams and the school and the progress of students, if measured by value added or measured by progress eight or measured by exams became the data that we all served. And we were now in competition. It wasn't just the data we were serving, but we were in competition with every other school. So we'd been turned into uh, a market where the students were the product. And this mechanistic view of schools as schools as machines for the production of measurable outcomes has dominated the way we think about schools for, for a number of years now, for the last few decades at least, and increasingly so. A guest of mine recently Professor Colin Diamond, who's education uh, professor at Birmingham University, really seemed to suggest that we'd reached peak data assessment outcomes level and the tide would turn against that at some point and we would have to start measuring schools and thinking about education more organically and in ways that simply weren't driven by outcomes. We'd have to start thinking about, as you do, about human beings, about the kind of people we produce, which is probably very difficult to measure. And we have a useful model for this in the education system of Finland, which is judged to be one of the best in the world. And as a recent guest of mine, Jennifer Chung of UCL, pointed out, schools in Finland aren't measured or assessed in the same way. They aren't, there isn't even an inspection system as we would recognize it. And student, and schools don't publish exam results or are measured in any sense by exam results or outputs of that kind. But I think that's, that's again, because of what we're valuing and what we're not valuing. So, you know, we don't exa- examine people on collaboration or their creative. One of, one of the projects I'm doing at the moment, actually, quite interestingly, a project with some European colleagues about, um, you know, what skills do people gain from video games? And, and can we assess actually to whether people gain skills at all? Actually, Ruth and I are both working on this, sorry, Ruth. And, um, the, you know, one of those, one of the ideas behind that is to try and, 
democratize um, the process, but actually be able to help teachers and employers and others say, well, you know, all right, you can actually use a micro-credentials process to see if someone has developed these kind of problem-solving skills, these kind of creative skills and so on by playing video games and actually use things like blockchain technology to, to award them micro-credentials. So in, a, or in, in addition to the, the qualifications they might get out of a, a school, they might also have these additional qualifications because I think that that's a gap in the school system in that we have those fixed things that matter, these subjects, and this is how you perform against it. I'm sure that we will see our current systems of assessment and accountability of schools, marketization of schools. That will probably change. It will pass. I think we are a hinge point when it comes to those things. Certainly we're at a hinge point when it comes to the organisation and management of schools. I think trusts have had their day. But in the far future, things that your book thinks about and things that I guess we can all think about, it seems a bit science fiction, things like artificial intelligence, things like hyper-reality, the increasing sophistication and use of data, data being the new gold dust, the new gold dust, the new oil, the new something, the value of the future will be in data and possibly even transhumanism. I, I, I'm a bit of a transhuman with my mobile phone in the sense that I've realized in my recent decades of my life, a mobile phone has given me an augmented memory and capacity to access information like no previous human being on earth. So we'll all have to get used to increasing interactions with, with technology. But I suspect, as I think you do in your book, I suspect that however we adapt to those things, as a previous guest of mine, Professor Rose Luckin from UCL, suggested that the most important thing is that we recognise that technology can, can produce good or ill and can be used or misused. And the key will be the characteristics and traits and type of human being we produce, as you mentioned earlier. In other words, the values of critical thinking, the ability to be both accepting and questioning, tolerant and knowing when to be intolerant. In other words, the kind of person we'll want in the future will be a, someone with fine skills of being human. It's interesting, actually, because um, that's another thing that Chris and I are continuing to think on and, and work on around that and certainly um, conversations recently around the uh, the Christmas dinner table with extended members of the family around dare I say his name Andrew Tate uh, we've got some young young men in my family but also I'm a, a safeguarding governor of a, a local um, secondary school too and and really trying to think about you know how is it that as a school we have these conversations where you almost don't want to shine a light on on some of this, as in you don't really want to have to talk about it and draw attention to it at the same, but at the same time, I, I think that it, some of it comes back to, you know, we're talking about schools as a place of community as well, and coming across people who are different to yourself, who, who have, uh, you know, comes from, come from different either backgrounds or have different beliefs um, and, and reestablishing trust within, I think we talk about in the book about that, don't we, societal trust and the important around social capital of having wide networks of people beyond your kind of small sphere. I think for me, there's going to be an even more use of kind of technology in a, in a way to drive collaboration, in a way to drive creativity, and in a way to drive people working not just with 
peers here, but peers across the world, working in different locations, going to be very different in terms of the, the kind of the structure and who people are working with and how they're working. Well, if the past is another country, the future is certainly also going to be a very different place. And so Ruth and Chris, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion this week. I've enjoyed reading your book and I've really enjoyed talking to you about the possible changes to education and schools in the future. So thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you for inviting us. It was a a nice way to spend a Friday. Whatever we think schools will be like in the future, it's clear that our expectations are going to broaden. In 2020, the World Economic Forum released a report on schools of the future. Education. It suggested the sorts of things education and schools would have to do in the future. Develop interpersonal skills, technology, innovation and creativity, global citizenship, lifelong learning, problem solving, initiative and personalised self-paced learning in schools. So, not a lot then. Many of these things are fairly obvious. Before you listen to this podcast, no doubt, you'd have thought up quite a few of them yourself. It's probably true, from what I've learned today from my guests and thinking about schools of the future, schools will have to be playful, enjoyable and creative. Places that enable children to find meaning in what they're doing. They'll have to be experimental in ways that integrate learning and real-world applications. Students will have to be literate in their ability to evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of technology in the future. They'll also have to be places of physicality, of embodied activity, and learning through movement. And it's quite likely that whatever we think the skills students will need now, or guess now that what they might need in the future, they'll certainly need things we can't predict. They'll have to be multi-literate. A few years ago, the late Ken Robertson did a very famous TED talk, in which he outlined many of the things we've described today, laying down the challenge of the future, rather brilliantly. Something strikes you when you move to America and when you travel around the world. Every education system on earth has the same hierarchy of subjects. Everyone, doesn't matter where you go, you think it would be otherwise, but it isn't. At the top are mathematics and languages, then the humanities and the bottom are the arts, everywhere on earth. And in pretty much every system too, there's a hierarchy within the arts. Art and music are normally given a higher status in schools than drama and dance. There isn't an education system on the planet that teaches dance every day to children the way we teach them mathematics. Why? Why not? I think this is rather important. Our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. And there's a reason. The whole system was invented around the world. There were no public systems of education really before the 19th century. They all came into being to meet the needs of industrialism. So the hierarchy is rooted on two ideas. Number one, that the the most useful subjects for work are at the top. So you were probably steered benignly away from things at school when you were a kid, things you liked, on the ground you would never get a job doing that. Is that right? Don't do music, you're not going to be a musician. Don't do art, you won't be an artist. 
Uh, benign advice. Now, profoundly mistaken. The whole world is engulfed in a revolution. And the second is academic ability, which has really come to dominate our view of intelligence because the universities designed the system in their image. If you think of it, the whole system of public education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance. And the consequence is that many highly talented, brilliant, creative people think they're not because the thing they were good at at school wasn't valued or was actually stigmatized. And I think we can't afford to go on that way. In the next 30 years, according to UNESCO, more people worldwide will be graduating through education than since the beginning of history. More people. And it's the combination of all the things we've talked about, technology and its transformation effect on work, and demography and the huge explosion in population. And it indicates the whole structure of education is shifting beneath our feet. We need to radically rethink our view of intelligence. I believe our only hope for the future is to adopt a new conception of human ecology. One in which we start to reconstitute our conception of the richness of human capacity. Our education system has mined our minds in the way that we strip mined the earth for a particular commodity. And for the future, it won't serve us. We have to rethink the fundamental principles on which we're educating our children. There was a wonderful quote by Jonas Salk who said, if you were to, uh, if all the insects were to disappear from the earth, uh, within 50 years, all life on earth would end. If all human beings disappeared from the earth, within 50 years, all forms of life would flourish. And he's right. What Ted celebrates is the gift of the human imagination. We have to be careful now that we use this gift wisely and that we avert some of the scenarios that we've talked about. And the only way we'll do it is by seeing our creative capacities for the richness they are and seeing our children for the hope that they are. And our task is to educate their whole being so they can face this future. By the way, we may not see this future, but they will. And our job is to help them make something of it. It's certainly a brave person who tries to predict the future. I remember distinctly being at university and sitting in a pub with one of our lecturers. He was engaging all the students with thoughts about the future and what they might do. He came to the conclusion, he said, the one thing that we would face in our lives would be the problem of finding things to do since work would surely diminish. Machines, technology, would replace most of our jobs. And this was almost certain. The working week would decline and leisure and how to use leisure would be the problem of the future. In reality, over the last 20 to 30 years, the working week has hardly diminished at all. And in fact, we've become a much more time deficient society with people pushed if not into longer hours of work, then into more uncertain ways of working. Flexible working. Flexi time. Some years ago, a parent came to see me about their young son who was in year 10. The problem was, we simply couldn't get him into school in the morning. He was always late. Well, the problem is, he said, is that I'm at work in the morning when he's getting ready for school. And his mum is also doing shifts. She works nights. It turned out that he didn't see his parents in the evening and he didn't see his parents in the morning. Although he had two parents who were working full time, they rarely saw him and he rarely saw them. When I was a child, my mum didn't work. Most of the women in the street I lived in the early 60s didn't work. 
far from working less, we really work more. So what will the future hold? Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, technology has changed our lives. Life expectancy has lengthened, child mortality declined, and the shops full of more things, of more varieties, than we ever could have imagined. Our children, though, will face environmental crises. It's doubtful that war will have diminished in frequency. Polarisation, bigotry, and a problem with information and discerning truth from fiction will be one of the challenges of their lives. The problem of information will mean that they live in a world where there is more knowledge easily available than has ever been true. Each of us carrying a library more vast than any library in history in our pockets. And yet navigating our way through this, finding out what is true, what is reliable and what is not, will present them with a unique challenge. And the most surprising thing of all is that inequality is likely to widen. Not only as the effects of climate change and environmental damage will certainly affect the world in very disproportionate and unequal ways, with some suffering. far more substantially than others in different parts of the world. It's also likely that technology will have uneven effects on society, enhancing the lives of many, diminishing the lives of others, de-skilling and providing opportunity in very unfair and uneven ways. These will be the challenges of the future. And one, I hope, if Chris and Ruth are right, education, being the superpower they think it is, might just be able to, well, address in some way. Whether in the future students are sitting at home, whether they have information consoles strapped to their heads, whether they're injecting them with knowledge through tubes in their arms, or taking them off into the woods to explore and climb trees. We'll probably be asking ourselves how we can do it better. I'll leave the almost last word to the Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development and their thoughts on schools of the future. As our societies evolve, so do our education systems. But what does the future of education look like? To answer this question and understand how traditional models are evolving, we looked at emerging features that may become the new normal in education systems around the world. What did we see? Traditionally, in education systems, decisions are made by a select group of people and everyone has a distinct role. Students learn by listening to their teachers, teachers teach, and principals manage the schools. The curriculum is linear and standardized. Academic performance is prioritized, and students are assessed through standardized tests. How is this changing? Education systems embodying the new normal are part of a larger ecosystem, where decision-making and responsibilities are shared among a wide group of stakeholders and students are active participants in their own learning. 
In these schools, the learning process and student well-being are also valued, in addition to academic performance. There is a recognition that students come from different backgrounds and learn in different ways. Learning happens in a non-linear process, with different types of assessments used for different purposes. These schools are monitored no longer just to ensure accountability, but also to encourage frequent feedback at all levels to continually improve the education system. The future, by definition, is unpredictable, but by developing responsive education systems, we can help our children adapt to, thrive in, and even shape whatever the future holds. And that brings to an end another episode of The Friday Break with John Gibbs. Thanks once again to my guest this week, Professor Chris Brown and Ruth Lesbourne, who discussed their book, Educating Tomorrow. If you enjoyed this, you can now find it as a podcast on Teachers Talk Radio, on Spotify, on multiple other platforms. I hope you'll join me again in two weeks' time. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.